This is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, The Extraordinary Story. Brought to you by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Written and hosted by Tom Hoops. In this episode and the next, we will be looking at the grand summing up of Jesus' message, the Beatitudes. Jesus tells us to be poor, mournful, meek, pure, and persecuted. Which sounds very much like a slave morality, like something you might tell slaves to make them buckle under. And that's been accused of that, and we'll talk about that. But in fact, what's going on here is the fulfillment of what we heard in the episode about the opposition to Jesus building. And he went into the synagogue and read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring glad tidings to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free and to proclaim a year acceptable to the Lord. Well, today in the Beatitudes... Jesus does exactly those things. So let's start by reading the account of the Beatitudes from Matthew. And later on, we'll read the very different account of the Beatitudes from Luke. But in Matthew, we hear, When he saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain, and after he had sat down, his disciples came to him. He began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the land. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the clean of heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are they who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, when they insult you and persecute you and utter every kind of evil against you falsely because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward will be great in heaven. Thus they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So that's the story. Jesus goes up a mountain like a new Moses and transforms the covenant that Moses had made with the Israelites. No one knows for sure where this mountain is, but generations have said that it's in northern Israel by the Chorazim Plateau. Pope Benedict XVI went to the Mount of Beatitudes church that's there and described the place this way. Anyone who has been there and gazed with the eyes of his soul on the wide prospect of waters of the lake, the sky and the sun, the trees and the meadows, the flowers and the sound of birdsong, can never forget the wonderful atmosphere of peace and the beauty of creation encountered there. So this is the sweet earthly place blessed by God where he called us to a new place, a spiritual place that's even sweeter, to the kingdom of heaven. Remember, the Israelites had escaped from slavery, and Moses gave them Ten Commandments as his covenant, offering them the promised land. Well, here, Jesus broadens his promise to all nations, and he gives them a new promised land, the kingdom of heaven. He fulfills all the covenants with these Beatitudes, The Catechism calls them the fulfillment of all promises made to the chosen people since Abraham. That means this is the moment where he fulfills that promise that Abraham's descendants will be numbered as the stars. And this is the moment where the kingdom of the new David is extended to all of us. 
To understand the significance of the Beatitudes, it's important to notice that there are actually many other Beatitudes in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We've even heard some of them already in the story. Like the one Elizabeth said to Mary, Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Jesus later kind of ratified this one, saying, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. We will later hear Jesus apply that to everyone when he will say, If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. But the remarkable thing about these Beatitudes and several of the other Beatitudes that he'll share throughout the gospel are how much they are focused on himself. He will say later in Matthew, Blessed is he who takes no offense at me, which is a strange thing to say, meaning he's someone very special to be reckoned with. And he'll say, Blessed are the eyes which see what you see, meaning that just to witness him is a special gift. He'll also later say, he will say, Blessed is that servant whom his master finds doing his will when he returns, meaning that he's coming again someday and just being in the right state when he comes is significant. And the last one I'll mention is in the book of Revelation, where he'll say, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. But a first question has to arise about all these blessed are they who statements. What the heck does blessed mean? It's sometimes translated happy, but Erasmo Leva Maricacus, whose book on Matthew is a contemporary Christian classic, doesn't like that because in our time, happy tends to mean pleased or euphoric. He translates it fortunate. But when I think of it, I think of what Aristotle meant by happy. Aristotle said we find true happiness when we exercise our virtue in doing the thing we are meant to do. So a carpenter is happiest when he's skillfully constructing a cabinet as only he can, or a violinist is happiest when she is playing a complicated piece and hitting it just right, or a mom is happiest when she's guiding her children through a tough time and they are responding to her guidance. Aristotle said that just as an animal's greatness is found in what it uniquely can do, I don't know, like a giraffe uniquely grazes from the tops of treetops on a savanna, just as that giraffe is only happy when it's grazing the tops of trees on a savanna. So we're only happiest when we can do the thing that only we do, which is contemplating the good. Well, contemplating the good is one way to put it, but living in harmony with our potentialities at one with the logos and at our highest excellence is maybe another. That's what the Beatitudes here are describing as blessed, not just someone who is gifted something and not necessarily someone who's grinning and enjoying what he's doing, but somebody who has it all together. Aristotle says, happiness does not lie in amusement. It would be strange if we were to take trouble and suffer hardship all our life in order to amuse ourselves. He said, rather, it's the life of active virtue. The life of active virtue is essentially pleasant. Anyway, well, this gets back to the entire reason we're doing this podcast in the first place. It's all about what makes us happy, what makes us who we are, what makes us fulfilled in who Jesus is. The Beatitudes from the Sermon on the Mount are the ultimate display by Christ of who we are and how we discover who we are in him. Each blessed are they who describes what it means to be like Christ, and each, for they shall be, shows the result of drawing close to Christ's life. So I think of it like this. 
The poor in spirit are like Jesus. They do not give their hearts to the distractions offered in the maze we live in, but to the true joy in heaven instead. Those who mourn are like Jesus. They take human life seriously, like he took it seriously. In fact, he became human to save us. The meek are like Jesus. And Jesus was meek. As St. Paul said, though he was God, he did not consider divinity something to be grasped at, but took the form of a slave and was obedient to death, even death on a cross. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are like Jesus. Their desire for true justice cannot be bought off by any worldly version, but only the real thing. And the merciful are like Jesus. They say, forgive them for they know not what they do, even when they are being mistreated. The pure in heart are like Jesus. They see and serve the image of God in every human person, not looking to use people for themselves. The peacemakers are like Jesus. They reconcile the Father with all of his children. And the last beatitude gets even more personal. He says, not only blessed are they, but blessed are you. So it's like this. When you are persecuted, you are like Jesus, because only by running the gauntlet of the way of the cross with him will you enter heaven happily with him. So let's look at each beatitude, shall we? First, blessed are the poor in spirit. I never looked at the beatitudes the same way as I did after reading Dr. Leva's book on Matthew, which I already mentioned. And he looks at the original Greek in each of these cases, because Matthew's gospel was written in Greek. And he takes the words for blessed, poor, and spirit, what they really mean, and recasts this beatitude. Fortunate are they who beg for their life's very breath. What Jesus is saying, he explains, is that we depend on God the same way that our lungs and our voice depend on air. We have so much to be thankful for, but we never think of it. We never think of everything surrounding us. We have the air, the sun, the land, the trees, food, shelter, clothing. We have beauty, we have truth, we have goodness and love around us everywhere at all times. To be poor in spirit is to be grateful for all of it. How different that is from the way we look at the world. Because we tend to look at the world very much through material goods that we amass for ourselves. We may complain about government overspending, but the truth is that many of us are not much better. We eat out more than we can afford to. We buy more toys than we can pay for. We fail to consult the budget that we set up and build a mounting pile of debt. This approach is the very opposite of poor in spirit. Those who aren't poor in spirit, those who have hopes in wealth, health, or material pleasures are fundamentally disturbed at all times because we are at the mercy of our checkbooks. We're at the mercy of the market. We're at the mercy of tough times. Pope Francis has been great about describing how bad off we are. A constant flood of new consumer goods can baffle the heart and prevent us from cherishing each thing in each moment, he says. To be serenely present to each reality, however small it may be, opens us to a much greater horizon of understanding and personal fulfillment. Happy are the poor in spirit, for the goods they seek are always in abundance, as long as God is God and we are creatures. Blessed are they who mourn. This one is particularly weird to our ears. It seems to be saying, sad people are the happiest. But it's true. When someone dies, those who enter into that sadness and mourn it are the ones who are truly in touch with themselves and the value of human life. Those who shrug off death aren't happy 
they're dead inside. We don't mourn well in our world today. We tend to be afraid of death and afraid to confront it. We have often been so out of touch with family members that when we hear of their death, it doesn't really faze us much. We are so inundated with bad news that hearing of huge numbers of deaths sometimes doesn't really faze us much. This failure to mourn, even those killed in abortion or destroyed as embryos, has an impact on how we interact with the world, according to Pope Francis. He says, quote, How can we genuinely teach the importance of concern for other vulnerable beings, however troublesome or inconvenient they may be, if we fail to protect a human embryo? He says the loss of the ability to mourn human life makes other sensitivities wither away. I've always found it meaningful that we hear the Beatitudes every year on All Saints Day, which is the morning for many of us after Halloween night. If you'll indulge me and let me go over the top a little bit, I'll compare the two. Halloween is a day for horror movies when we watch deaths for cheap thrills and when we dress up like a dark creature of death, perhaps. If you think of the kind of adult revelry that happens in Halloween, then Halloween night is the perfect metaphor for a world without Christ. Rootless pleasure seekers dressed to reflect their fantasies and fears stumble through a dark, cold, decaying autumn world. And then, All Saints Day dawns, and we gather in church to learn about what really makes us happy, who we really are, in the Beatitudes. Without All Saints Day, Halloween would never end. We'd always be stumbling in the dark, wondering who we are. The Beatitudes are an explosion of grace that takes seriously the sufferings and hurts we face in a dark, twisted world. Next is Blessed are the Meek. This is an important one, so I'm going to spend some time on this one. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. This one I think is particularly hard for contemporary people to understand. In fact, it's one that we philosophically reject. I talked about how Nietzsche saw Christianity as a slave morality. He may have had the Beatitudes in mind, and maybe this one in particular, when he said that. In fact, the way he describes Christian morality coming about is this. The Egyptians had a master's morality. They were builders, creating pyramids and conquering lands. They were masters of their own future. The Israelites were slaves to the Egyptians, and so they had to find a way to understand themselves in this circumstance. So they simultaneously taught their children how to be good slaves who didn't get in trouble by telling them to be meek, obedient, and submissive. But this narrative came to dominate their self-understanding, so they eventually created a priesthood that proclaimed that being meek and dominated is good, not bad. Nietzsche was very influenced by Darwin, and he thought he was telling an evolutionary story. Only the power who dominate survive. Jewish morality became Christian morality, but at long last it was failing, he thought, because it wasn't the stuff survivors are made of. Now, we know today more than Nietzsche did about evolution. It is not the dominating and aggressive ones who survive, as the book Survival of the Friendliest and many other books point out. It's the cooperative, sacrificial, other-focused creatures that survive and thrive. It's the friendliest that survive, not the most domineering. So Nietzsche was just wrong on the facts. If God, ever present in the world, created a system of secondary causes that work through evolution, then the Beatitudes are actually the highest expression of the book of nature, as well as the book of scripture. The Beatitudes are actually very consonant with what it takes to be a successful creature in the world.
But we've seen where his mistake has led. You could call them the Nietzschean Beatitudes, or maybe since we are all children of Nietzsche and Sartre in the modern world, we can call them the Beatitudes of Secularism. But they would go something like this. Blessed are the comfortably well-off, but woe to the poor. Blessed are those who move on, but woe to the mournful. Blessed are the forceful, but woe to the meek. Blessed are those who get special treatment, but woe to those who just get justice. Blessed are those who get their way, but woe to those who have to forgive. Blessed are those who get what they want, woe to those who are hung up on purity. Blessed are the winners, woe to the losers who just want peace. Blessed are those who all the world loves, and woe to the persecuted. But what have the Beatitudes of secularism gotten us? Stress, sleepless anxiety, unprecedented disease, and despair. Or maybe the Nietzschean Beatitudes are the Beatitudes of narcissism. Every age has its unique failing, and as early as the 1980s, Christopher Lash argued that ours might have been a culture of narcissism. The New York Times described it then as members of the culture being joyless men and women who cannot love anyone but spend their time desperately seeking admiration to counteract their feelings of inner emptiness, and those who have a grandiose sense of self-importance or uniqueness and react with rage or deep humiliation when their superiority is not recognized. Well, in 2013, Dr. Jean Twenge wrote about the narcissism epidemic that our culture's obsession with social media was already creating. In 2017, her book iGen noted that as digital media rose, so did depression, anxiety, and suicide. Then she demonstrated that the correlation is no coincidence. Kids who spend a lot of time watching TV and using smartphones, tablets, and computers were more likely to be anxious, depressed, and suicidal. Kids who regularly played sports or otherwise exercised attended religious services, read books, hung out with friends face-to-face, and did homework, were less likely to be depressed, anxious, or suicidal. Anyone who has used a smartphone to capture a moment can understand this a little bit. We all know how this happens. In the middle of quality time with our family, we scramble for our phone such that we focus not on the beautiful, moving, and enriching moment, but on the self-referential act of capturing them. Then we take a picture that never gets printed, rarely gets seen, and are left with a compromised memory of a compromised event on top of it. Social media is training in narcissism. The exaggerated feelings of self-importance a narcissist feels make the world feel like a movie starring him. But so does social media. It forces us to recast events in our mind in marketing language that will make them seem fascinating to others. We don't just go to the park with our kids looking to enjoy each other's company. We go to the park with our kids looking for a shareable moment. We hate the way TMZ treats celebrities' personal lives, but we are our own TMZ on our social media. On the other hand, the meek take God's creations on God's own terms, truly inherit the earth by appreciating the beauty of who we are meant to be, the beauty of nature, and the dignity of human life. To the meek, the world is, as Pope Francis put it, rather than a problem to be solved, the world is a joyful mystery to be contemplated with gladness and praise. On the other hand, the meek see themselves in their real importance, which is all about understanding God's view of ourselves. Often, when we assess ourselves, we are looking at a narcissistic mirror, and these self-assessments turn out to be distorting.
think of three different mirrors. The pride mirror we look at is like one of those funhouse mirrors that children love because it makes them look like giants. The pride mirror is uncritically flattering. When we think about yesterday through the pride mirror, my exercise that I did turns out to be my great perseverance. And the part of the exercise that I skipped becomes my great prudence. The cookie I skipped was my self-discipline. The soda I drank was my self-care. In the mirror of pride, we're always the fairest of them all, reassessing everything to put us in the best light. But once you're in a fun house looking at mirrors, you know what happens. There's another mirror that makes you look grotesque. In addition to the fun house mirror that makes you look like a giant, there's the one that makes you look misshapen and twisted. I often look at myself through that mirror and get depressed. I remember what I said yesterday and I can't believe what an idiot I was. Or I remember the mistake I made seven years ago and shame wells up in me with the sting of a fresh wound. This kind of thing is actually very common nowadays and it's at the root of spiking rates of anxiety and depression, according to some psychologists. We catastrophize every mistake and turn every flaw into a fatal flaw. One great counterpractice is cognitive behavioral therapy, which helps people recognize common thinking errors to catch themselves when they start making them. But a shortcut is to look in the third mirror, the one that God gives us. This is the mirror of meekness. This is a mirror that has no distortion at all. It just shows me, made in the image and likeness of God, who loves me eternally. My virtues are real in this mirror, and so are my vices. If I'm willing to look at them clearly, I can fix mistakes that need fixing and laugh off mistakes that don't need fixing. Alongside Jesus Christ, I see how totally weak I am in this mirror, but I also see how totally great I am to be loved by one such as him. How great am I? John Paul II said, compared to the immensity of the universe, man is very small, and yet this very contrast reveals his greatness. You have made him little less than a god and crown him with glory and honor. Next is the beatitude to hunger and thirst for justice. So often we mistake Christianity for a be nice morality. And be nice is a fine philosophy as far as it goes, but it doesn't go very far at all. To hunger and thirst for righteousness means to refuse to tolerate the destruction of social values. Such a hunger won't stand for the destruction of marriage and family. It won't be nice when these things are happening. It won't stand for pornography or embryo killing research. It won't be nice about the fact that these things are happening. It won't agree to destructive gender ideologies or other intrinsic evils just to save face and be nice. Here's how I think about it. Jesus wants us to hunger and thirst for righteousness or justice. But there are three groups that we tend to fall into. First is we tend to be ideologues. Or second, we tend to be political partisans. The third kind of person is who we are supposed to be. People who hunger and thirst for justice, justice-centered people. So let's explain these. Ideologues think that they own the truth. And they say, if you disagree with me, you must oppose me. Right? Sometimes I fall into that camp. Political partisans see truth as a spectrum. They say, don't go too far to the right or too far to the left. Stay somewhere where people will still accept you. Justice-centered people see truth as an immovable rock available to all. They say the truth is here. Let's move to where we can all grab it and stand here on the truth. 
Ideologues mistake a part of the truth for the whole truth. A Marxist and a free market economist will both make the same mistake. They'll say, man is primarily an economic being, for instance. And then all of their policies will be to make the person a more efficient economic being in a Marxist understanding or in a more efficient economic being in a free market understanding. Political parties aren't interested in what's right or wrong. They're interested in winning. So if we are Democrats, we'll cheer Democrats on, ignoring what they do that isn't on board with the gospel because we want the Democrats to win. If we're Republicans, we'll cheer them on and kind of ignore what they do that's against the gospel because what we really want is the Republicans to win. But justice-centered people will part ways with their party over what's true and what's not, what's just and what's unjust. Now, the problem is that each of these is hungry for what they want. Ideologues want everything. For instance, they don't just promote LG rights, lesbian and gay rights. They load up their cause with LGBTQ rights, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgendered, questioning. They go beyond what's reasonable. That guy should be allowed in his partner's hospital room to what many think is unreasonable. That guy should be allowed in the women's bathroom. Political parties underreach. They look at the world in terms of not what should be and what should not be done. They look at the world in terms of what will gain us or lose us power. They grant concessions to ideologues every once in a while, then they're constantly surprised when the ideologue isn't satisfied with the concession and wants more and more and more and more and more. Oh, the, but the problem is that those of us who are justice-centered people, or those of us at the times that we are justice-centered people, are not hungry enough at all. We don't long for justice to be fulfilled with the same longing that the ideologue longs for his truth to be fulfilled or that the political partisan longs for his political party to be fulfilled. But when you do long for justice to be fulfilled, even when it's not, you'll find that the hunger and thirst for justice brings a kind of completeness to your life. Fighting for civil rights is satisfying because you know you're doing the right thing, even if you lose every battle. I will fight to change hearts about the humanity of the unborn until the day I die, even if I'm unsuccessful until the day I die, because it will still be more satisfying than just doing nothing and accepting injustice. So don't be satisfied with a be nice morality. Don't be an ideologue. Don't be a political partisan. Be somebody who hungers and thirsts for justice. This concludes part one of this episode on the Beatitudes. Jesus had much more to say about the Beatitudes, and he had a very different set of Beatitudes that are in the Gospel of Luke. We'll consider those next week on The Extraordinary Story. The Extraordinary Story is written by Tom Hoops and produced by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Our mission is to produce media that will transform culture in America through Benedictine's mission of community, faith, and scholarship. If you enjoy this podcast, please follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Leave a review and share with a friend. Help us tell others about the extraordinary story. Visit us at excorde.org.